The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. All the brave folks who came out tonight, thanks. It's really nice to be together always, have our set. And uh, normally at this time of year, the solstices and the equinoxes, we take some time at the practice groups to reflect on refuge. There's uh, one of the practices in the tradition is to take some time. Ideally, we do it every day. And uh, to be somewhat reflective about, well, what, what is worthy of our trust? What are we willing, what feels right to place our heart upon? What do we trust? And then to whatever degree we have a sense of refuge, something that's worthy of our trust, then uh, what are we going to do about that trust? How do we express that commitment? What does that commitment look like as we take it into our lives, into our relationships, all of our duties and responsibilities? So I want to talk about that tonight. And, uh, you know, we often take things as refuge. I mean, just to be honest with ourselves, it'd be interesting just to sort of review the last week, last day, last couple hours even, and just to see in terms of what the mind dwelled on as a refuge, like looking for comfort, looking for safety, looking for meaning, looking for refuge. I mean, maybe some of you go to the news for refuge or go to entertainment or go to relationship for refuge or food for refuge or various distractions, busyness for refuge, sense of responsibility like needing people to need you is a refuge. And we're not often, I mean, it's interesting, I think we're afraid of, like if we did this more consciously, okay, what do I feel comfortable putting my heart upon? What do I, what can I really trust? What do I know that I can trust from my own experience? We might, you know, we might be afraid that we come to the place where we'd have to say, "I, I know that I don't know, and that might be disconcerting, so... We avoid it, you know, we avoid taking refuge or reflecting on refuge. <clears throat> Fortunately, you know, we don't have to have the answers. We just need to be curious. And when we're curious, we, you know, we hear, like we hear what the Buddha said, for example, you know, people who have carefully studied the teachings of the Buddha and, you know, and had enough of a sense to you know, to distinguish maybe what this person that we refer to in this tradition as our teacher, even though he lived 2,500 years ago, what he actually taught as a human being back then at that time versus what sort of teachings and ways of teaching got institutionalized over the centuries in the various communities of monks and nuns and lay practitioners And uh, the Buddha was really pragmatic, 
really straightforward. You could say, in a way, that you know the essence of Buddhism is being realistic. You know, aligning our whole life, the way we operate, the underlying values, with what is straightforward, pragmatic, realistic, natural. And so I'll just offer you some of the essential teachings from the Buddha. And then as you hear them and as you reflect on these four things, you could just be asking a question like, from my own perspective, from my own life experience, is what I'm hearing is, does that line up with my own experience? And is it something I can trust? Like, live my life uh, based on, could these refuges be a guide for me as I live as a human being and interact with the people in my life and my responsibilities and show up for the messy world. So one of the first things you see when you study the teachings of the Buddha is that he he talked over and over again about the stress involved whenever the mind is caught in a fixed view. That's not the same as saying, you know, you, you can't make choices or you can't have an opinion, but it's the it's for us to look at when our mind is fixed or dependent on a particular point of view or an opinion or even a way of doing something and it doesn't mean that the way we're doing it is wrong or the opinion we have is wrong it's just meant to point out like to know and you can check from your own experience like is that true whenever my mind has been fixed tight about something, holding tight to something, has that been helpful to me or to anybody? Is the attachment, the fixation, the holding tight? So no fixed view as a refuge. That's kind of interesting. You can just like notice what our mind does when we read the news and how often we do get fixed, you know, in opposition to somebody or in opposition or in alignment with somebody else. Oh, yeah, they're right because they think like me or they see it like I see it. Thich Nhat Hanh and others, you know, they they suggest just to sort of, as a, an experiment, to tag on a line after every thought, like maybe not so or who knows. It's Sunday. Who knows? <laughs> now, who knows what that means? You know, we don't have to be so sure. Some people call it Sunday. <laughs> you know, we might think after the election or, you know, for any number of reasons that this is a difficult time or this is a bad time or this is a time, a tipping point. I mean, we have, and, and all of that might be true, but does it help to be, to pretend that we're certain to be fixed? Is there something dangerous about always keeping a sense of openness, a sense of humility of, well, who knows? We don't really know. Looks bad, but who knows? Or looks good, but who knows? 
go home, somebody you live with made you a nice dish, looks good, but who knows? (laughs) Sounds like fun, but who knows? This really scares me, but who knows? So just to see if, if, if we do practice taking refu- refuge in no fixed views, then to just see, like, what, what does that set in motion? Is it functional to live that way, no fixed views? What would the harm be? What harm might come from living that way, cultivating no fixed views? Would it make us less clear? Or would it make us less engaged in, the, you know, in all the ways that the world seems to be asking for engagement to have, to have dropped that fixation on views or that tightness around opinions and view? So that, that's sort of interesting, like as a refuge, no fixed views. Not to, because we shouldn't have fixed views, but to really see it as a great guide and protector, like a cause for happiness, real happiness, this abandoning of fixed views, and to explore it. You know, you don't have to take up all four of these, but you know, one or two might be really of interest, just sort of get your attention, and then to take it up as a theme you just live your life with, kind of keeping it in mind, not so much about thinking, but just using it as a way of illuminating the life you're living, no fixed views. And then, of course, when you notice there is a fixed view, it sort of will beg the question naturally, like, is this helping? Is this necessary? Is it functional? Is it a cause for harm? And the second teaching we see from the Buddha that seems pretty clear, you know, comes from this person who had a lot of insight way back when. Because he talked about it so often, you know, when you look through the volumes of the Buddha's talks and the teachings of the early disciples of the Buddha, you know, you see over and over again in different versions, different ways of bringing it up, but encouraging us, encouraging people who would hear the teaching, to recognize the limitation of sense pleasure. This is sort of, this is another very provocative thing that we might consider as a refuge. It's like what we'd like as a refuge, you know, it's like a superpower. That would be a refuge, you know, I, I know what you're all thinking. Or, you know, having a lot of money in the bank, or even better, you know, gold coins, or who knows, you know enough food for the rest of our lives, canned goods, an amazing cellar. And then we're safe, you know, or an oppressive house, that, an amazing security system, and geothermal, and, you know, a solar array on the roof. So we're not dependent on anybody, completely independent. That's sort of what we normally think of as a refuge, and a lot of good, you know, DVDs to keep us entertained. <laughs> So to hear something like, as a refuge, like as a great protector in our life, sense pleasures are limited. It doesn't seem like people would pay a lot of money for that sort of secret. You know, would you, 
travel far, arduous trip to get the, the great teaching that's going to save you. Be careful putting too much emphasis on sense pleasures. You know, that doesn't seem like it's that valuable of a teaching. But the way to think about that is <clears throat> just in observing, you know, when we observe our mind and our actions in the world, we see that almost all of the activity of the mind and all of our action in the world is in pursuit of sense experience, a pleasant sense experience. So to the degree, to the degree we sort of hear this, like we're, we're hearing it tonight, and then take some time to check it out, like, okay, so the Buddha really made a big point of trying to convey to people that sense experience, sense pleasure in particular, it's pleasurable, right? I mean, no one's, including the Buddha, is going to argue that, you know, having a nice hot bath or a nice meal or hanging out with some dear, dear ones in our lives, some dear friends in our lives, or having some financial security or being treated with respect. No one denies that these things aren't nice. They're nice. There are real pleasures in life. Hopefully everybody experiences enough pleasure to know that, yeah, that's true. But have we like the Buddha suggests we should, have we taken time when we're experiencing a sense of pleasure, have we taken the time to really track our experience with it? Oh yeah, oh yeah, I'm going to have that mokajaba supreme delight with sprinkles or whatever, you know, or whatever your hot drink that you like is, and we're going to get it. And have we actually taken the time with enough integrity to track, like oh, looking at the anticipation and looking at the getting and then the, the nice feeling of gratification and then just keep tracking it to really see what it is to get what we like or to go home and go to bed or to, you know, whatever the extraordinary or ordinary sense pleasure might be. And it's really this point is often misunderstood in, in the Buddhist teachings as a kind of negation of the world. You know, the world's a bummer. Because the Buddha explicitly said that that's a trap too. Spending your whole life pursuing sense pleasures as if they're going to lead to a lasting happiness is, doesn't, it doesn't turn out that way. It's sort of, in a way, it's a, a betrayal because it seems like it should, but it doesn't. The relationship, the special relationship, the perfect relationship, seems like it's going to take care of us, but then it doesn't. Or having kids seems like it's going to be meaningful in a lasting way, but it doesn't take away that existential angst, having children, having a good partner, having health. There are a lot of people with good health who have existential confusion, a heavy heart, right? A lot of people have healthy, wholesome relationships, loving relationships. Wealth, beauty, intelligence, right? So we know this. I mean, this is not anything that uh, people don't know. We all know that people have these things that we pursue all the time, 
And yet, the people who have the things we're pursuing all the time aren't significantly or maybe even as happy as we are. And yet, it seems like if I got that Tesla, you know, and then I'd have to get one of those charging stations in my backyard, you know, and then I'd have to get off the grid because I wouldn't, I don't want to use, you know, coal or natural gas, so I'd have to put up a solar array. I mean, it just goes on and on about how we're going to get our life perfect so we'll be happy. And it'd be nice, like it'd be, if you're brave enough, have you gotten there? Has anybody who sort of got the sense desires, the sense pleasures that you thought would make you happy, so now you're there, where you've gotten everything you've wanted, and you're beyond want. It's like you've gotten everything you wanted. So the happiness is now a steady state because you've gotten what you've wanted. Anybody want to volunteer as that person? So, so the second refuge is really taking that in. And the Buddha doesn't say, so don't pursue sense pleasure. He just says if you spend your whole life pursuing sense pleasure, interesting, beautiful, pleasant sense experience, you're going to end up missing the point. So it's, it's basically like, as a refuge, it's basically saying, honey, be careful. It's really easy to miss the point. A lot of people go left, and you really want to go right. But it's going to seem like going left is really the right way. Don't go left. Go right. right? That's, and that's a huge refuge, because if you go left, right, you don't get to where, 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 what the heart actually seeks. And this brings us to the third point the Buddha made over and over again. Whenever he talked about his own, the fruit of his own practice, or when he talked about sort of what other sincere good practitioners got from their practice, he always talked about it in terms of peace. A sage is at peace, at peace with the way it is, not at peace with some something outside, but no matter how it is, right? It's an unconditioned peace. So it doesn't come and go. That's what makes the Buddha a Buddha or a sage a sage, a wise, compassionate person. What distinguishes them is they're at peace with the conditions that are showing up for them in that moment. So this is, like as a refuge, this is important because there are a lot of interesting things we might aspire to. I I was joking this morning uh, when I was giving this talk to the Sunday morning group. You know, there have been so many movies about superheroes lately, right? And it's, you know, there are a lot of things. I mean, these days it's sort of interesting. They've gotten a little bit more interesting. Like some of the superheroes are, they're troubled even. You know, even though they have superpowers, they have like personalities and hang-ups and stuff like that. And we're just enchanted with various conceptions of perfection. You know, when I was 
younger, little boy, you know, James Bond, the early James Bond. I know it's terrible programming, but there it is. I mean, that, that's kind of the imprint from the 60s, growing up in the 60s. And, uh, you know, the other kind of ideas of being impenetrable and safe and powerful and better than and beautiful and, you know, knowing what other people don't know, unflappable. It's sort of interesting, at least for boys back then, that was sort of the ideal. And you could just think about it like what what kind of conceptions have been programmed into your mind around perfection? And then really think about this third point that we find from the Buddhist teachings, that what the heart really wants, the one thing that's actually worthy of aspiring to, and not peace in some abstract sense. This is the, this is the real important point about peace. It's not peace as an abstraction. Like we imagine somebody sitting in the cloud being really at ease. No, it's really specifically being at peace in this moment. Right? It's a peace that is at peace in this moment, an ease that could be at ease in this moment with the conditions, the messy world, the imperfect world as it is. And it's okay if this is provocative, like, well, I'm not sure I want to be at peace. Or, or I'm not sure I deserve to be at peace. Because remember, all three, all four of these, rather, they're contemplations. They're something to play with or to hold in our mind as we live our life and just see to kind of discover, like, is this a refuge? Does this illuminate and protect, guide, does it lead to the release of the heart even before we know what we really want, that we want the release of the heart? Does it lead to where the heart, what the heart actually wants? You know how it is with children sometimes. It's like you know they're going to like this, but they're struggling. They, they, they don't want it. But you know they're going to like it. You know, and They could be kicking and screaming. And, and the same with my cat or my wife and our, uh, my cat. You know, it's like, oh... Struggle, 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 but it likes it, right? It's what it wanted. And this is the thing about peace. This is why we want to check it out as a refuge. Do we aspire to a heart that can be unafraid at peace no matter what shows up for us in our life, no matter what twists and turns our life takes? no matter what we see happening in other people's lives. And part of it is we don't understand what that peace would be. We, because the only thing we can conceive of sometimes is, oh, it would be a peace because I'm removed, like I've separated myself out. I don't care about my life or other people's lives or the world. You know, that's, that's just another version of that transcendent, like get me the heck out of here because it's crazy here or it's bad here. But how about a peace when the mind sees exactly how it is, sees real suffering, real oppression, 
real ignorance being acted out, all the inequities, injustices that when we pay attention, when we show up, we really see, oh, that's, that's not right. So peace, right in the middle of that, or being with somebody who's dying but doesn't want to die, or waking up in the morning and finding you, ha- you have a cold but you don't want to have a cold because you've got a lot of important things to do. And there it is, you know, the scratchy throat or the congestion, and you know, you kind of sense what's coming. So peace, ease, release. And that peace, that fearlessness, that release, is what allows for the life to express itself fully. The engagement is wholehearted, right? So it's just the opposite of any sense of peace that comes from being removed. It's like precisely because of the peace, the heart, mind, body, whatever this thing is here, it's like because of the peace, it can be fully engaged. Right? Because it doesn't need to remove itself because it wants peace. It has peace. So we can be fearless in our engagement, compassionate in our engagement. We can really be creative and explore like what kind of response would be useful here. So you have to, we have to really contemplate what peace would allow for us. There's a great scene, I often mention this, I, have, I mean this was like, right when we moved to Minneapolis back in the early 90s. And um, around Thanksgiving, it might have even been on Thanksgiving at the Uptown Theater, they had this great film called Black Robe. Anybody see that film? It's about the Jesuits coming to uh, North America uh, in the 1600s. And they would come down the St. Lawrence River. um, And they were missionaries, you know, and... It, it paints sort of, you know, it doesn't put the French missionaries in a good light, but it, it, it's, a, it's a really gritty and powerful film. And uh, one scene, <clears throat> this uh, Native person, kind of the chief of this group of Native people, um, is dying, and they, they're in their canoe, and they pull over to an island, and uh, he's sitting there, and they're kind of around him. His daughter's there and his other colleagues. And, and he looks around, and he realizes that the scene he's seen is a scene that he had many, many times in a dream. You know, the scene of the place where he was going to pass, he's going to die. And he says to the people around him, I wish I knew what I was seeing, because I would have been so fearless in living my life, always knowing that this isn't the place I die, you know, because it's not, it's not that image. And this is, I, for me, it's just a little taste of that piece, like uh, when we're not afraid of being a human being that lives and dies, when we're not afraid of being imperfect or living in an imperfect world, a messy world, 
with real injustice, when we're not afraid, when we're instead at peace, you see, we can really live our life fully. Like we're not, we're at peace, so we're not afraid of making mistakes and learning from them. We're not holding back at all. And this is really the key to learning, you know. Becoming wise requires engagement. We have to keep showing up because that's how we learn. We bump our head and we don't do it again. Or we, things go smoothly and we learn from it. Oh yeah, that worked pretty well, saying what I said or speaking up here or keeping quiet there. So we have three so far, three refuges. We have the refuge that we can hold as we live our life and really see, is it a protector that fixed views don't help? That it's possible for us to live without the mind getting fixed, being dependent on anything, being dependent on being right. And we have this great protector, this refuge of understanding or at least holding the possibility that sense pleasures are limited. They're not really going to lead to a a meaningful happiness. It's definitely nice if we had the choice between a life with a lot of sense pain versus a life with a lot of sense pleasure. I know what we'd all choose. We would choose a life with more pleasure. right? But whether you're one of those people who've had, relatively speaking, a lot of sense pleasures in your life or not, do we have any evidence that people who have a lot of sense pleasure in the heart are happier? It's very interesting. I don't know if you... I, I saw Mother Teresa speak once and, uh, and read a number of her books or books written about her. And... Uh, one of the thing that, things that got, was often quoted was how, uh, when she came to the United States, how she saw, like in Buddhist terms, we call them hungry ghosts, you know, people, really unhappy people, really unhappy people. And, you know, she was working with really poor people, dying people around the world, but, you know, especially in Calcutta. <clears throat> And so it's just interesting, you know, we might think, and, you know, in some ways, I would choose to live in the United States probably as, as corrupt or unjust or whatever as it is. It's a relatively orderly place, and there are freedoms here, stability here, that I really appreciate. I'm sure some of you do too. But... Even here, we can see the limitations of it. And to sort of understand that even being in Minneapolis doesn't make us immune to suffering, to despair, to confusion, to being a hungry ghost, always looking for something to make us happy. So just see that as a protector. And then this refining what the aspiration is, to be peaceful no matter the conditions. And then the fourth is interesting, the fourth refuge that you see the Buddha talking about all the time, and this really has to do with the practice. 
and how the practice has to be in line with the aspiration. So if we want, if we aspire to being peaceful no matter what happens, so that the peace isn't a function of conditions, that's the provocative thing about that, then what do you suppose the training or the practice is? Being peaceful now. Right? Can, like, instead of rationalizing or justifying getting agitated or getting tight, no matter what's going on in my life, I'm exploring the possibility of releasing, relaxing, opening, trusting, no matter what's happening, really difficult times. So the next time you're in an argument with someone, remember this. Like, really settle in. Open up. Feel what you're feeling. See if it's possible to be in a difficult interaction and peaceful. Or, you know, can't find your wallet. Be really peaceful with it. I mean, I'm learning. I, I don't feel like you know, I, I've mastered this by any stretch. The other day, my wife and I were doing some work in our house, and uh, we had some visitors, um, so we were getting set up. And uh, we were just doing some cleaning, and I, and I just happened to move a corner of, of a rug we have in our living room. And I just lifted it up a few inches, and there was like all this mold underneath. And it turns out uh, there's a we had a big plant nearby, and it's on this little uh, tray that has wheels on it, and it, and it, the plastic had cracked. And so every time we watered it, the, tra- the tray would leak, and then it would go underneath the carpet, and it warped the wood floors, which you know we just put in a couple years ago. But I, I noticed because you know the habit energy is to sort of just get dramatic about it, you know, as if rushing at this point, you know, the water's been sitting there for months probably, <laughs> would help. You know, and I, and I just saw, like, just the beginnings of hab- new habit energy coming in like, why get tight? You know, what's that going to do? Maybe you can deal with it. You know, you've got a heavy carpet, got to drag it outside, find a place to hang it up. You know, and scrub the mold off the wood, you know, and and that's about it. I mean, there's nothing, the carpet's still hanging outside. <laughs> I don't, I have, one day I'll Google how to take mold off of a wool carpet, but it's, you know, it's going to be too cold to, to do anything for a while, and I don't want to bring it back in the house. But it was just interesting to, I noticed, I was mindful enough to notice that sort of new programming, like, yeah, you could get tight, you could get reactive, you could sort of storm or, you know. And I'm kind of in charge of the plants in the house, so it's like, if anything, it was my fault to not notice that the thing was dripping. That's just like, just a little example, or you read something in the news. It's like, it's so interesting why we think scaring ourselves, frightening ourselves is helpful. Oh my God, he said that, <laughs> you know, or something like that. And then, you know, and I, and whenever I'm in that place, it's like, then I want to look again or look at like, what else? What else is provocative? What else will frighten me or agitate my heart? As opposed to, 
So if we want to be peaceful, if we really, in our bones, feels like that is the aspiration to be at peace no matter what, then we have to start in this moment. This is the only place we can be peaceful no matter what, is in this moment with the conditions that are here, the circumstances, the way it is now. So just check, you know, in your own experience, what would that, like if we were going to operationalize that fourth refuge, we would, well, can this moment be okay? And you see, they all tie together because we might have a fixed view. No, this isn't, this isn't where I wanted to be or who I wanted to be or where I want to be. Well, can it be okay? Can that be okay? Like, to not be who you want to be or where you want to be or what you want to be. Can that be okay? You know, the, the way to simplify it so it's really, you know, really provocative is, is it safe to relax? Or when is it not safe to relax? And by relax, I mean, you know, being at ease, being peaceful. doesn't mean you're not going to jump or run or, but is it safe? To be peaceful, is it safe to relax? Because in my mind, that question we have to, that's a question to hold until we have some clarity from our own experience. Like, is it safe to relax? You're having a difficult interaction or you're, you know, whatever it might be, looking at the mirror and putting your makeup on or shaving or whatever you do. And it's, what you find when you hold that in mind, when you like when that is your training you've taken on to practice being at ease now, you realize all the little ways and big ways we justify, we feel quite justified being tight. Like, no, no, it needs to be tight. I'm in traffic, I need to be tight. I'm with someone who's talking and I need to leave, but I don't know how to end the conversation, so I need to be tight. I wore the wrong pants today and they're too tight, so I need to be tight about that. <laughs> right? Or I'm hungry and it's going to be an hour or more before I get to eat, so I should be tight. I'm not sure how I'm going to save for retirement, so I should be tight. Or, you know, I don't have health insurance, so I should be tight. Or I don't know how this country's going to do, you know, with what's all in motion, so I should be tight. Or global warming, I should be tight. Or, you know, criminal justice system. Some people don't feel safe driving cars, so I should be tight. And it doesn't mean we should be stupid about how the world works. It's just a question of getting tight helps us be skillful? That's really the question. And so, I'll, I'll open it up for the group, but just uh, one more time to review. And again, don't feel like you have to hold on to all four, but one or maybe two. And then j- practice just living with it for a while. Like, is it solid gold in terms of a refuge? Something that really delivers what your heart actually seeks. 
So one is the exploration around fixed views. Are they helpful? Is it a sweet release to drop a fixed view? You know, it's just it, it's kind of light to go to to remember many many times a day. You know, I don't really know how this is going to play out. I don't really know. Who knows what's going to happen here? And that's just a nice thing to put after every opinion. And then the second one is really holding as we live our life that sense pleasures are pleasurable, but that's all they are. It's just a pleasant experience that arises and lasts and then goes away. That's what everything is. A new home, a new car, a new relationship, a new exercise regimen you know, that we're following. It's something that arises and lasts and then it changes or goes away. So remembering that that the pursuit of sense pleasure is just that. It's not an ultimate refuge. It doesn't deliver happiness in a meaningful sense. That's an exploration, not that's not dogma, but it's something for us to explore. Because that would really clarify what to do with our life. Because not pursuing that investigation means we're going to pursue sensed desires. Because there's just so much cultural programming. I mean, it will be different, each of us, how we do it. But that's what we're going to do. So it saves us a lot of time. You know, it's interesting in Buddhist cosmology, which is just a story, and maybe it represents some reality, maybe not. But, you know, there's like incalculable lifetimes, right? Samsara, these cycles of suffering, because we do that, we keep going left and going left, pursuing sense desire, never getting what we seek to get, happiness. But always pretty sure it's going to be with the next you know, gratification, next thing we get that we want. But we've gotten a lot of things we've wanted. I mean, we haven't gotten everything we wanted, but we've gotten some of the things we've wanted. Maybe you really wanted to come to the talk tonight, <laughs> right? But you see, it doesn't... The real will be like, do we do something with you know, what we hear? So that's the understanding the limitations of sense desire. Then the third is clarifying the aspiration. What is it? What do we respect? Well, we respect someone who's peaceful no matter what. Stable, peaceful, not in a distant way, but in right in the middle way. Not afraid to be touched by life. Peaceful no matter what is showing, able to take it all, let it all in, be intimate and respond from that place without losing that sense of release or peace. And then the practice, this is a refuge, is to always remember that the practice is to be peaceful, to practice being peaceful in this moment, to do it here, to ask the question, is it safe to relax now? Is it safe to open now, to let this moment be? So it'd be nice to see, hear from a few of you, what you've been learning, what comes to mind given what I've said tonight or any questions of course that you have and remember you got to point right at your mouth point the mic right at your mouth oh please say your name too uh, I'm Rob um, 
my question may not sound intelligent, I don't know, but it's often come to mind about sense pleasures. I've always known that it's not permanent, but it delivers hundreds of times a little bit, whether it's uh, beer or food or a movie. And so I don't know a more longer-lasting substitute than hundreds of thousands of little rewards. That's yeah. what comes to my mind in that area. And it's ex exactly this kind of sincere questioning or investigation that we want to do. So we, if we're fortunate, not everybody is, we can, you know, that's what we mean by, a, you know, in a relative sense, a happy person is someone who's fortunate enough to be able to line up, like you said, you know, one little sense pleasure after another. And the thing is, we get distracted with the surface experience, which is we are getting another hit and another hit and another hit. And what we're not doing is being a little bit more reflective and looking at the stress that there's that is there in the need to get another hit and to get another hit. You it, you notice it a lot more when you can't get a hit. Then you really see the stress of the mind's dependence on getting that next hit. Or when you've run out of interesting things to watch, but you still want more entertainment. And then you feel the tension, like the hunger, basically. And it's very appropriate for us to say what you said, that, and I don't know what would replace it, right? So here's the thing. It's like, uh, that's why we have these teachings, you know. It's like, well, I could explore, like, is there peace that's not a function of the peace we, there is a momentary peace we get when we get what we wanted. But the interesting thing about that peace of gratification is the heart, the mind itself creates the tension of not having what I want, and then that tension goes away when I do get what I want. So the peace we get is releasing the tension the mind created in desiring something. So it's just like a little game the mind is playing with itself. And the more we unpack that, we see that stepping out of the game altogether, we begin to intuit. I mean, it would be peaceful, wouldn't it, to not need anything? This doesn't mean that if someone hands us a nice meal, we're not going to eat it, or that if the, our employer pays us, that we're not going to receive the check. It just means that we're cultivating a spiritual ease, a, a spiritual peace that's not dependent on living or dying, health or ill health, wealth or poverty, oppression or privilege. And then our our interaction then isn't neurotic. So as we engage the world, it can be a lot more about compassion than about pursuing our own needs. Yeah, I appreciate the comments. Yeah, please. I'm just trying to reconcile the, the what seemingly conflicting ideas of uh, like not valuing asceticism and not valuing attainment. Would it be fair to say that like the goal isn't to stop telling stories or stop having views, but to do it more in the spirit of exploration than like 
knowing that then as a like a destination yeah and understanding the limitations of concepts or any opinion right so it's a kind it's a humility that arises from studying what opinions are and and the destruction that arises due to somebody's fixed or arrogant certainty about their ideas i mean there's when you look at human history the most despicable things arise from people groups having fixed ideas and so fixed that it doesn't occur to them that it's a construction of their own mind race is a good example of that right you know or any kind of difference or a lot of the difference you know or, or that way that we separate ourselves out is something the mind constructs it has real implications but it's a construction of the mind and so to to be able to talk and have ideas and opinions but to not forget what that is it's a construction of my mind right now and any certainty any fixedness with that is suffering and it causes it has ripples out into the world because the more i show up with a lot of fixedness certainty it kind of we tend to want to meet that with our own fixedness and certainty i mean nothing draws that out of me more than being around somebody else who's in a fixed view then i want to don't we want to fix them <laughs> and but we come at it from a fixed place it's like they need to be fixed that's our fixed view and they may be you we may be right on some level that they're sort of in a fundamentalist stance and that might be unhealthy for them and it might have negative ripples but to approach it in a fixed way this is it's contagious ignorance is contagious but so is wisdom yeah thanks for sharing i think megan had her hand up I was at work today and we were sitting in the workroom um, and we had heard, so I work in hospitals, um, and we had heard this person outside of our workroom who I think had either lost a family member or they were really sick. And my medical student who is originally from a small village in Tanzania and he has this amazing story of how he got to America and is like in medical school now, he just turned, o- <laughs> turned to me and he was like, Megan, there's so much suffering in the world. And it sort of caught me by surprise. I like wasn't expecting that at all. Um, but he said he had had another interaction earlier where he walked by a patient's room and they just looked really sad. Um, and he tried to talk to them and they like didn't want to talk. And he was like, how do you deal with all of that? And I was like, <laughs> in my mind, I'm like Dharma moment. <laughs> but I don't, I don't know what I ended up saying, but it was just, I think I talked about equanimity and I talked about like, just gaining experience um and i don't know it was like i wanted to give him all of the experience that i had from like work and life and dharma practice and i knew that like you can't just give it to someone like they have to learn themselves as well and you can sort of point them in that direction um but i just like i wanted to like give him hope that there is you know there is freedom in all of this suffering um and i don't know I, I was reminded of this in terms of talking about refuge um i think because i don't know i've just learned over the years that 
it really comes, I mean, it definitely comes from sort of within ourselves and um, just letting our heart relax with everything. But I don't know. That was a little bit tangential. But I think the message was sort of one of, like, encouragement, I guess. Um, And it was just like a kind of a sweet moment today when he said that. And I was glad that he said that because not all medical students care about suffering. <laughs> um, so that's all. Yeah. Thanks, Megan. And, and it's, a, it's an interesting question. You could see Megan trying to, because we do start having some intuition, but it, it's not rational in a way that we can explain. I'll give you an example. It's just simple because, and, and I think it will be hope, uh, useful for you just in li- these little moments. But I was doing some walking. Med- I was on retreat up at uh, Ajahn Punadamo's forest, refu- uh, forest Hermitage, which is up in um, on the way to Thunder Bay, just across the Minnesota border into Canada. And they've got these little cabins in the woods. And I was walking back and forth in the cabin, and uh, well, a real a little colorful bird flew right into the window. And then, so every time I got to the end of my walking path, because the cabin's not that big, you know, I could just look, and there was the bird lying there. Um, and it was exactly some of your, and it, and it was like, you know, most of the birds are chickadees. This was like a bird I had never seen before. So it's probably a pretty rare bird, whatever it was. And, uh, you know, when you're on a retreat, you're especially sensitive. It just go like, really touches your heart. This is a bird that's just doing its thing. And someone put a damn window that reflected leaves, you know, and, and it's just, you know, it wasn't programmed to deal with glass, reflective glass. And, that, and now it's, you know, th- that life ended. And it's just so interesting in that, that little ordinary situation to, because the mindfulness had some momentum because I was on retreat, to just see hundreds of little impulses to get tight, but to see that like there's no there's no reason to follow through with that habit of defending the heart. Why not let the heart be completely raw or exposed? The mystery, like because the thinking mind wanted to make sense of it or plan, like we're going to get these screens or we're going to do this or we're going to do that as opposed to just the mystery that life comes and it goes. And it's tragic, and it really hurts. And we can keep, like, what we do is we keep showing up and we keep uh, expressing this willingness to feel what that feels like, to see the sad woman in the hospital who doesn't know what's going to happen or whatever was going on for them, you know, to be exposed and not to pathologize suffering. That's the interesting thing, right? Because this is one of those fixed views. Suffering is bad, or death is bad, or illness is bad, or pain is bad. Isn't that true? We think pain is bad. Acne is bad. You know, having a bad tooth is bad. Intestinal gas is bad. And it's like the list is pretty long. Bitter, cold, bad. And so it's like we're justifying all these little places in our life or big places in our life where it's like we've, we've kind of 
justified getting tight. Like, oh yeah, this is the place where I get tight. And it's okay, it's appropriate. It would be wrong not to. It would be dangerous to be soft and open here. We need to leave it here. Uh, you want to pass the mic back to Tom? And let's just take a couple seconds, just enough time to take one or two breaths together. Thanks, everyone, for coming. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.